Hi everyone, I'm your host, Jaco Selka, and you are listening to Hopefully Sustainable. Each week, I'm going to talk to extraordinary people who are doing extraordinary things to make the world a more sustainable place. My goal is for this episode to leave you feeling hopeful about an idea, a person, or the world in general. Thank you for joining me in this conversation, and all together we can be hopefully sustainable. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for listening to Hopefully Sustainable. Today, we have a super interesting episode because if I'm being honest, before speaking with our guest, I had no prior knowledge about the innovative technology that his company is using. Meet Ashton Zeller, the chief scientist at Algix, a clean technology company finding creative answers to eco-questions. In 2016, Bloom, which is an Algix brand, launched the world's first algae-blended EVA to the footwear industry as a sustainable ingredient in flexible foams for different applications such as shoes, sporting products, and accessories. As a little background, EVA stands for ethylene vinyl acetate, which is a type of plastic used in the soles of shoes. While the majority of shoe brands use plastic produced by fossil fuels to create the soles, Bloom is offering a sustainable alternative that companies such as Adidas, Reformation, and Dr. Scholl's are already turning to. By removing algae from polluted water sources, Algix is improving the environment and the sustainability of the footwear industry at the same time. Throughout this episode, Ashton and I discuss the overall impact of the footwear industry on climate change, how it was first discovered that algae could be used as a plastic alternative, and what it means to work with nature, not against it. While the algae technology and EVA development process is very scientific, Ashton does a great job of breaking it down in a way that all of the listeners can understand. I will define one term that Ashton uses throughout the episode, which is LCA, and it stands for Life Cycle Assessment. The Environmental Protection Agency defines LCA as a tool that can be used to evaluate the potential environmental impacts of a product, material, process, or activity. Ashton will discuss how their company is using this tool to communicate the sustainability of their products to different brands. I hope you all enjoyed the episode and are just as inspired as I was after learning about this innovative technology and the potential for footwear to be 100% sustainable. Let's get started. Ashton, thank you so much for being here today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the mission of Bloom. Uh, so yeah, my name is uh, Ashton Zeller. I work for uh, Algix, who's better known by consumers by the moniker Bloom. Bloom is our uh, consumer-facing brand name for the technologies that have been developed by Algix. Um, I'm the chief scientist uh, for Algix and uh, have been working for Algix for about 10 years since the technology was developed uh, out of the University of Georgia and spun off into a business. Great. I'm super interested to get into all of the facets of your work with Bloom, but first, can you talk about the origin of Bloom and how algae was first found to be a possible alternative to plastic? Uh, yeah, so um, basically uh, going back to some of the early, earliest human civilizations, human beings have been using proteins as plastics. Um, so if you go 
uh, all the way back to uh, Genghis Khan. They were making composite bows using glues made from horse proteins, horse tendon proteins, um, to make their composite bows, which gave them a huge edge in being able to fire a bow from horseback and deliver the same amount of force. Um, and so proteins are actually the oldest version of a plastic that humans have developed. And um, we got away from using plastics uh, made from proteins in the early 1900s after uh, World War I, when uh, Europe and France uh, took over the former Ottoman Empire lands and found oil. And we said, you know, hey, what can we do with this stuff? And developed all the modern plastics that we're familiar with today. Um, and so what Algex did is we uh, were originally working in the algae for biodiesel space and looking at routes to take algae and turn algae into a biodiesel product uh, from wastewater. Uh, one of the biggest issues that humanity has is our wastewater production. Um, wastewater production leads to algae blooms in the environment. It leads to environmental eutrophication, which has massive impacts on climate change and ecosystem change. Um, and so we said, okay, how can we address this water problem and create a viable product out of it? And, and we tried to do that through producing biodiesel. Um, the problem is that when algae produces uh, oil is normally when it's starving. It's a survival mechanism. So if you give it lots of nutrients, it doesn't produce very much oil. And so what we ended up finding is that we would produce very little biodiesel, but a lot of protein. And we said, what can we do with this protein? And that's what led us down the path of developing an algae-based plastic. Oh, that's a really interesting history. So how did you get involved with the company? Uh, so I uh, was hired by the company, um, our two co-founders, Ryan Hunt and Mike Van Drunen, uh, just a couple months after they started the company and had this idea to produce an algae-based plastic. Um, uh, Mike Van Drunen, uh, one of our co-founders, was in the packaging sector at the time and recognized the need for more sustainable packaging because of his uh, company's wide usage of plastic products all over the place. Um, and Ryan Hunt was working in the uh, engineering department at UGA at the time on the biodiesel project um, and, you know, was part of the team that was struggling to produce biodiesel and say, scratching their heads and kind of saying, you know, what, what, is, what are we going to do with all this algae that we have that we can't produce biodiesel out of? And so um, I was hired by them just a couple months uh, after that um, to actually do the research of developing a algae-based plastic, um, which is now what we have in the market available today. So before we get into the specifics of the actual company, can you give the listeners a little background on how human activities are causing water pollution and how these algal blooms form? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a number of contributing factors that lead to an algae blooms, but if you were going to try to simplify them into maybe uh, three key factors, um, I would say that the, the, the three main driving forces for algae blooms are increasing water temperature, which is in, uh, tied largely to climate change and increasing global temperatures, uh, increased phosphorus load, um, which is driven primarily by farming. Our farming practices of tilling soil and disturbing soil causes a lot of stored phosphorus in the soil to be washed off into waterways. Uh, it's also affected by mining, and it's also affected 
by uh, fertilizer production and, and uh, land use um, modifications. You know, if you grade out a piece of land to build a house on it, then you just disturbed all that soil and released a lot of phosphorus. Uh, and then nitrogen. Um, and nitrogen is uh, where uh, our wastewater treatment entities typically have the largest role. Uh, a lot of phosphorus can come from wastewater treatment uh, as well, but most of the time nitrogen is coming from uh, either fertilizer runoff from large-scale industrial farming uh, or it's coming from our municipal waste uh, treatment centers where uh, all of our liquid waste, whether it be food waste that got washed down our sinks or whether it be sewage or anything else is, is basically uh, consumed and digested by bacteria and converted into uh, largely methane gas and, and released and captured in the form of methane gas. Um, and then they, the water that leaves that operation after it's been digested and made safe oftentimes has a high nitrogen load. Um, it's not clean to absolute zero nitrogen. And so all that nitrogen is then put into the surface water, uh, surface waters, whether it be a river or a creek, and eventually ends up in a pond or a lake, something stagnant, or the ocean, uh, where it can cause red tides, ocean blooms, uh, large uh, toxic algae blooms, etc. What are some of the negative effects of these algal blooms on a water ecosystem? So probably the biggest one is biodiversity loss. Um, so even if you don't have toxic blooms, algae is very destructive on the environment because most people think of plants as producing oxygen, which is absolutely true. That's a huge part of their role during the day. But at night, just like uh, you know, all animal life, uh, plants have to respire. Um, and so they don't just shut themselves down at night, they continue to respire and they start consuming oxygen from their surrounding environment. And in the case of algae, what that means is that it starts lowering the oxygen saturation level in water. Um, and it's actually really hard for water to absorb oxygen from the atmosphere. Um, cold water does it better than warm water um, and moving water does it better than stagnant water. Um, but in general, water doesn't dissolve oxygen from the atmosphere down into its depths very easily. So if you have all the oxygen being consumed at the surface of the water by algae during the night, what ends up happening is you get very, very low dissolved oxygen levels at night, which will kill amphibian life, uh, fish life, or any kind of life that's growing in that lake, pond, etc., because it gets to just a, such a low level that they all suffocate. Then in the case of toxic blooms, you can also have algae that contaminate drinking water and, and cause problems for uh, humans who may use those lakes or bodies of water as reservoirs for clean drinking water. Um, and uh, there's also effects on uh, coral reefs. So coral reefs can be bleached uh, by the action of algae. So when nutrient loads are really, really high, coral actually prefers relatively low nutrient waterways um, because in those low nutrient environments, uh, they do a better job of filtering the small amount of nutrients that are available out and converting them into coral. Um, but algae prefers really, really high nutrient environments and grows really, really well in that environment. And it can shade out, cover over, and kill corals. Um, so in, in our uh, marine ecosystems, you know, coral reef destruction is a, is a huge aspect of algae growth and algae blooms. So where does your company come into this process? So we have 
contaminated water sources all over the US and all over the world. So what is your company doing with this contaminated water? Our company has, uh, over our 10-year life, really come into every step in the process uh, from a contaminated water body until the product. Um, where Bloom comes into play is working specifically with brands who have an interest in improving the sustainability of their products to deliver and help them understand how to use algae-based plastics so that they can clean air and clean water with their products. Um, so that's what Bloom does. Um, now, Algix as a company, we have developed technologies to harvest algae and get rid of uh, toxic blooms. We've done studies in New York uh, just last year. I believe Governor Como was using our units in, in New York State to clean up water bodies. We've done work in California and Florida. We've done work in Utah. Um, basically, all over the country and all over the world, we've done work with uh, large uh, engineering firms. We work specifically uh, with ACOM, which is one of the world's largest engineering firms, who has basically taken our technology and works with governmental entities trying to solve problems in the environment where they're the worst um, to go and clean up water bodies. Um, it, you know, for instance, uh, two or three years ago in Florida, uh, they had a massive algae bloom in canalways uh, because of the uh, Lake Okotibi, um overflow. And our modular harvesting systems were applied in that environment and were able to, in 24 hours, completely clean up a canalway. So in 24 hours, it went from full on bloom you know, lots of uh, algae, lots of contamination. You basically couldn't use the water. So 24 hours later, it was basically a crystal clear canal and people could start using their uh, boats and getting out on their docks and doing whatever they would normally want to do. So we've developed those harvesting technologies. We've developed drying technologies. We've, we've really had to kind of build the entire supply chain because when our business started, we originally thought we were going to work with biodiesel manufacturers. We were going to take the waste material of their manufacturing and turn it into another viable product. But what we realized was that we could do the most good and serve the environment the best by actually going after the algae that everybody hated, which is the algae that's causing blooms in the environment, treating the water, cleaning the water up, removing that waste nutrient and, and creating a viable product out of that. That's incredible. Could you expand a little bit on what the harvesting and drying process looks like and how you take the algae in the water to this final product? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, Algae on a microscopic level uh, would probably look like Velcro. Um, so it's got a bunch of little things hanging off the edge of its cell wall and um, all these glycoproteins and things that would allow it to entangle with each other uh, if it didn't have a charge. And so the way that algae protects itself from just becoming entangled with all the other algae is it basically has a little bubble around itself that no other algae wants to go into because all algae keep a negative surface charge on their uh, cell wall. Um, and so what we do is we say, okay, we're gonna neutralize that na the, the negative surface charge and cause the algae to start to wanna clump together. Um, so we basically just use a salt, it's all it is, it's a salt, um, and that salt goes in there and neutralizes the surface charge. Um, we do this out of the water body. So the very first step is pumping the water out of the water body into our modular harvesting systems, where then a salt is applied. The salt binds with the algae and neutralizes its surface charge, allowing the algae to want to stick and clump together. 
Uh, and then we use very, very small bubbles. Uh, most of the bubbles would probably not even be visible with the, the uh, naked eye. You would only just see the water going from clear to creamy uh, because there's so many tiny bubbles there. And these tiny bubbles, as we inject them into the vessel, um, basically grab onto these mats or clumps of algae and float it to the surface. Um, and so at that point in time, we have all the algae collected and separated from the waterway. The clean oxygenated water, because we just pumped a bunch of air into it, is able to go back into the pond uh, or lake or water body, you know, whatever it is. Um, and the algae then is able to just be skimmed off the top. And so we, we worked on that for probably four or five years. Uh, the technology is called DAF. It's actually a technology that's used in large scale for water treatment. Um, but we've uh, figured out a way to apply it to uh, cleaning water bodies and removing algae, which is a slightly different way to use that technology than what it's typically used for. Um, but the, the DAF moniker stands for dissolved air flotation, um, which is the, the technology that we use. Uh, and so it's pretty non-invasive for the environment. In fact, it's beneficial to the environment because as I said, the water is oxygenated. So when it goes back, uh, we've actually seen examples where uh, two water bodies right next to each other, one being treated and one not being treated. The untreated water body would have massive fish kills and have hundreds of fish die overnight, but our treated water body would not have fish kills uh, over a, a, a nighttime period, um, specifically because you would see all of the fish swimming in the discharge water from our harvester. So they were getting their oxygen from the water we were pumping back in because that was the only oxygen available in the water body. Um, so it's, it's pretty non-invasive. There's, there's not really a lot of uh, impact to the environment or ecosystem uh, besides just the algae being removed. You know, obviously that's a, a significant impact, mm -hmm. uh, but, but that doesn't harm the environment over the long term. Algae is able to double its population size in less than 24 hours. So even if we took out, you know, 99% of the algae that was in that lake, it would go from 1% to 2% in less than 24 hours, and then 2% to 4% in less than 24 hours. And then, you know, and it would very quickly get back up to its maximum uh, population size so long as there were still nutrients available. So really what we're doing is we're just removing those nutrients in the form of algae to try and prevent those problems in the future. Then from there, there's a number of different routes you can take to dry it. Um, and the route, differs depending on the environment that you're in. Um, so in a climate that's very dry and arid, solar drying would be best. It's low energy. It doesn't require you to uh, basically add any additional negative environmental impacts in, in the form of, you know, burning of coal or natural gas or anything for power generation. Um, and it is able to be done without the algae rotting. But if you live in a very humid climate or a climate that has a lot of cloud cover, um, then solar drying may not be the best option. Uh, and in that case, um, you could use microwaves. There's large scale industrial microwaves. Um, we've also seen uh, uh, conductive and convective heating. So basically things like an oven or things like a uh, large drum that uh, is, is heated and the algae basically cooks on the surface of the drum. Um, and we've also seen uh, techniques called spray drying, which is where you take the uh, slurry of algae skimmate and you spray it at a high velocity so that all of the algae and all the water molecules 
particles atomize, which it is basically breaks into very, very small particulates in the air column. And then you keep that air column very, very hot so that as those particulates go down the vessel after they've been atomized and settle at the bottom, all of the water is driven out during their drop. And so when you get to the bottom, you have a very dry material at the bottom. Um, so those are just uh, some examples of some different drying techniques that you can use. They're all, uh, none of it is completely new technology. It's just technology that existed that we've been able to adapt to this very specific problem of uh, treating algae blooms. I saw on the website for Bloom that they say the company works with nature, not against it. Could you expand on what that means and how this could be applied on a larger scale to so many other companies who currently aren't working with nature, they're working against it? Yeah, um, so, you know, what we say, what, what we mean by saying that is, you know, twofold. Uh, one, when we're treating algae blooms, we treat algae blooms by using nature's course for treating algae, which is growing, uh, treating nutrients, which is growing algae. Um, so when nutrients get to really high levels, uh, algae blooms occur and bacterial blooms occur. That's just what nature does. That's, that's basically nature's cleanup crew. Um, so instead of trying to reinvent the wheel on how to remove those nutrients, uh, we work with wastewater entities and large governments to treat water before it gets into the environment and, you know, produce uh, algae that is then harvested and removes all those nutrients um, before they ever get to the environment. Um, so that's uh, one way that we like to say that we're, you know, trying to work with nature. We're, we're saying, you know, hey, what does nature use to clean up nutrients? The answer is algae. So let's, you know, take that algae, recover that algae, and prevent it from happening in the environment where it's causing problems. Um, the other reason we like to say that we work with nature and not against nature um, is because we're not trying to, uh, you know, take a crop, for instance, grow it, in one form, you know, so we're not, uh, you know, not to pick on any specific crop, but just let's say corn, for example, it's a common crop grown in the US and there's a lot of technologies tied to corn. But when you grow corn, that's not nature's method. Nature doesn't do monoculture. Nature doesn't do tilling and fertilization. That's something that's completely derived from man and you don't get the productivity out of, you know, however many acres are being used to grow corn that you could have gotten by having that be a multi-tiered forest, for instance. Um, and so the more land we try to dedicate, dedicate to growing crops to produce products, the more of an impact we're actually having on our environment. Um, and sometimes when you grow those crops and you produce a renewable product, that renewable product is actually worse, than, worse for the environment as measured in an LCA, which is what scientists use to determine the total environmental impact of a product. Um, so by using algae, we're actually using something that nature doesn't want. It's growing in a, in a massive abundance that is beyond nature's capacity to handle. Um, and so we're coming in and we're saying, you know, hey, let's take the burden off nature and allow nature to keep doing nature's thing uh, instead of coming in and saying, okay, we figured out a cool way to grow corn. Now we need to grow a lot more corn. <laughs> let's go, you know, let's go make another hundred acres of cornfields and destroy nature and start converting nature into our intended use instead of nature's intended use. That's an incredible company mindset, and it'll be great to see in the future more companies using this motto of working with nature, 
and not against it. So we haven't gotten into it in super detail yet, but can you talk about what part of the shoe is actually replaced with your product? So at the, more, at, at the moment, our technology is able to be applied to uh, insoles, midsoles, and outsoles, uh, which is basically everything on the bottom of your shoe. And then it can also be applied to uppers if the upper is a foamed rock, uh, upper. So for instance, shoes like Crocs would be a good example, um, have a foam upper as opposed to a woven fabric upper. Mm. Um, if, if your shoe has a woven fabric or leather upper, we, we can't do that uh, at the moment. We don't have technology that is made for that. Um, but we can be a part of uh, and have been a part of insole, midsole, and outsole projects and a wide range of uh, consumer footwear options. So how is Bloom partnering with shoe brands to implement these materials on a larger scale? I know I saw um, some of the brands include Merrill, Ultra, Reformation. So what is that process like of brands coming to you and wanting to use your product to become more sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the, the footwear supply chain is actually incredibly complicated. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize how many individual parts go into a pair of shoes. Um, you know, the, the bomb is not quite as complicated as your car, but it sometimes can be pretty close. Um, and so we're pretty far down the supply chain, but we do interact directly with brands. And the reason we interact directly with brands is because brands are interested in our story. They want to understand how to better tell our story. And because we are providing uh, third-party validated uh, information and data to them that helps them tell consumers compelling stories about the sustainability impacts they're able to deliver. Um, but our, our place in the supply chain, we make all of our products uh, here in Meridian, Mississippi in the United States. We don't have any other compounding operations around the globe. Um, and our products are shipped from here uh, to uh, some factories in the US, but largely factories in uh, Vietnam, uh, China, uh, Indonesia, uh, India, these are large footwear producing countries, um, where it is converted to a foam, uh, which is used in die cut, uh, which basically they have a foam sheet and they cut it out into the form of an insole, um, or it's foamed directly into a midsole, which would be the, the kind of uh, thick foam that's on the bottom of your shoe, or it's compressed into a outsole, which would be the bottom tread of your shoe um, that comes in contact with the ground when you're walking. Um, and so we work with a number of different factories. I don't even know how many factories we're working with at the moment, but we've probably worked with uh, definitely in the double digits and maybe even triple digits of different factories around the globe uh, to understand how to use our materials, to address any problems that might develop that are just, you know, normal manufacturing problems with using our materials. Um, and then we uh, work with the brands to help to understand how to communicate the benefits of our materials and to price out our materials and, you know, to, to, to help them understand, you know, our business. Um, and, 
basically the people we work with are not the people who make the shoes, they're the people who make the parts for the shoes. Um, and then there's generally another person in the supply chain who is actually the person who assembles the shoes. They get all these different parts in and, and they're the people who, you know, glue or sew or stitch all of those shoes together um, to form the finished tennis shoe or running shoe that you would buy in a store. Have your operations been impacted by COVID-19 at all with the factories being in other countries such as China and Vietnam? Um, yeah, I would say it's been impacted by COVID-19. I can't say that it's specifically because it's in China or Vietnam. Um, I, don't, I don't know that there are uh, necessarily specific impacts for that reason. Um, there are slower shipping uh, times right now internationally back and forth, but mm -hmm. we plan ahead well enough that that's not really an issue. So, you know, it's maybe been impacted, but not significantly impacted. Uh, the largest impact is just consumers aren't buying. Um, and so since consumers aren't going to retailers and buying goods, retailers aren't going to brands and saying they want more goods and therefore brands aren't saying, hey, Bloom, we want to buy more of your material, you know? Mm, okay. um, so, you know, I would say the entire economy has been in affected uh, by that, uh, you know, just the, the, the slump in consumer buying. Um, and, you know, we we expect that that will probably change in the future. And, and um, obviously we also expect that consumers will uh, start to uh, be interested in buying more sustainable materials in the future. So we're hoping that, you know, as people become more interested in sustainable materials, that will outweigh um, any, you know, slowdown in, you know, consumer spending. Yes, definitely. I think a lot more consumers are becoming more interested in finding out about the sustainability of their products. So hopefully this will just allow Bloom to grow and have an even greater impact in the future. You talked a little bit about pricing out the materials. I'm interested, is there a major price difference between using just normal plastic versus using your product? Like I said, I'm the chief scientist for our company, so I don't really get in the sales discussions as much. Um, but, but what I will say um, is that it's my understanding that there's not a, not what I would call a significant difference. Um, on, on our end, the, the parts that are sold to a brand who uh, is um, using Bloom parts, um, you know, might be 10 to 25% more expensive. Um, but the parts are a relatively minor cost in the cost of producing and selling a shoe. You know, most shoes probably are $10, you know, when they leave the factory, you know, but then they're bought at stores for hundreds of dollars, you know, so um, it's, it's, very minor cost increase in the grand scheme of things compared to the cost from retailer markups, the cost from the logistics to get it from where it's being produced to stores in the U.S., uh, the cost of just branding, buying brand name products versus buying, you know, unbranded products. Um, so it, it's not a significant cost from my perspective as a consumer, um, mm -hmm. but from a from a brand's perspective, you know, ten to ten to twenty five percent markup is not not nothing. You know, it, obviously, it goes into their bottom line, and they have to decide whether they pass that on to consumers or not. 
To zoom out a little bit, I saw a shocking statistic on the website that said in the US alone, the average person buys up to five pairs of shoes every year, fueling a global shoe industry that produces nearly 30 billion pairs of shoes every year. Can you talk about how the shoe industry as a whole contributes to climate change? Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, footwear um, are unfortunately very disposable products. And I don't think that's really driven by the footwear industry. Um, you know, the, the scientists, the developers, the people I speak with at brands are very interested in making their shoes more robust. Um, but unfortunately, uh, robustness and comfortability are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know? So if you want your shoe to be comfortable and give and, you know, not give you uh, plantar fasciitis, <laughs> then um, it, it needs to uh, be able to have some give. And having some give also means that there's a loss in durability. Um, and so because of that, shoes are kind of inherently consumable. Right. They're, they're not really a product that you buy and use for 10 years, you know. Um, so. Uh, so, yeah, you know, that's where the majority of the impact probably comes in footwear is that, you know, since shoes are disposable, then they're turned over often and any impacts that they have, even if they're small, are significant because they're bought so often. Um, there there is also a pretty significant movement within footwear because they realize they're disposable to reduce those trends. Um, in fact, that's why Algix is working with footwear uh, through our brand Bloom um, because the, the footwear industry is very forward thinking about the way that they view uh, sustainability and um, their interest in sustainability. So um, that's not to say that the industry doesn't have a lot more things that it could do, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, for the most part, they're they're pretty forward thinking. You know, I would say if I were to if I were to peg one significant thing that the footwear industry could do um, to improve its sustainability, uh, it would be to bring manufacturing closer to the consumer. You know, shipping things across oceans is not without impact, um, and more importantly, a lot of the countries that footwear products are produced in currently are. Uh, predominantly coal burning electricity producers and it's not clean coal you know it's not u.s coal it's you know old school archaic coal um i've been to china multiple times and the smog's not great <laughs> so um so you know uh just uh bringing manufacturing back to um western countries and western economies would would have a significant impact on the sustainability of the products. Um, but it would also have a probably probably have a substantial impact on the cost. So, um, you know, brands are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place trying to decide what do consumers want? Do they want more sustainable products or do they want affordable products? We've talked about this on a previous episode on the topic of sustainable fashion and just how consumers don't really think about all of the steps that go into their shoes or their clothing. What are some other things that algae is being used for other than the footwear industry? Is your company involved in any other products? 
Um, yeah, so we're, we're involved with a lot of uh, sporting goods. Um, so actually, our, one of our very first products uh, in the consumer space um, was a uh, Kelly Slater uh, surfboard traction pad uh, that was launched by him. Um, we've also been involved in um, some uh, kind of like workout equipment and yoga mat projects. And um, so, um, you know, I think that um, we, we definitely have an interest in being involved in other markets and, and there may be other Bloom product offerings in um, other markets in the future. Um, but like I said, right now, you know, uh, footwear is a pretty, pretty forward thinking market in terms of sustainability. So they've been, they've been great partners um, in trying to advance um, the consumer mindset towards more sustainable products. What do you see as the future of the shoe industry and for Bloom as well? Oh gosh, that's a hard one. Um, so uh, for Bloom, um, as the marketplace starts to have a, a stronger interest in sustainable products, there's a lot of other markets we could jump into. They're just not markets that are interested in us at the moment because sustainability is not important to their consumers. So um, consumer electronics, automotive, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff we could do in those markets. Um, and those are markets with large brands that have the ability to communicate our story. Um, so um, I, as far as the future for Bloom, I can easily see uh, Bloom finding, you know, niche applications within those products um, that could be made sustainable. And, and I could see those brands having an interest in Bloom as Bloom grows. Um, for, for footwear, um, I would say that the direction of footwear is kind of hard to predict and, and forecast. Um, I think there's a several kind of cool things that are happening in foot, footwear. Um, you know, for instance, there's there's a lot of uh, movement in the footwear industry towards um, you know rapid prototyping or small scale production. So you might see a lot more custom footwear um, as the technology gets better and you know changeover gets better and waste between changeover gets better. It becomes a lot easier for companies to make footwear that looks exactly the way the consumer wants it to look. You know, so you see. Um, uh, with the new fly knit and prime knit woven uppers, it becomes a lot easier for a company to just change what your upper looks like on a dime. Um, with 3D printing, it becomes a lot easier for a company to just change with a, what a midsole would look like on a dime. So um, you could get a lot more customization while still having uh, equivalent or maybe even better levels of sustainability because there's a lot less waste. You're not mass producing and trimming and you know losing a lot of scrap and uh, so forth and so on. Um, and then you know I, I think also um, footwear is going to probably um, be looking at sustainability um, as one of its top focuses instead of just one of its maybe like top three focuses. Um, and so I think you're gonna see a lot more shoes that are fully sustainable instead of partially sustainable. Um, so maybe instead of a part on the foot bomb is sustainable, you know, all of the foot, you know, where parts will be sustainable in the near future.
that's really exciting to think about all of the possibilities for Bloom and the direction of the footwear industry going to become more sustainable. So as we come to the end of the episode, I like to ask every guest what they are hopeful about. So to end on a positive note, what are you hopeful about? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about consumer interest and sustainability and, and not just sustainable gimmicks, but actual sustainable information. You know, we're seeing a lot of people wanting to have actual data behind what is making their product sustainable. And um, so in the past, you know, a, a company who didn't really want to be sustainable, they just wanted to act sustainable, could just say that, you know, they had a certain percentage of recycled content or they could have a certain percentage of renewable content. Um, but from an LCA perspective, it might actually be worse for the environment, you know, so they could basically put on the gold star of sustainability without actually having done anything that benefited the environment. Um, but as consumers, you know, start to become more educated about, you know, what the impact of their products actually is and start asking questions about that. Um, I think the metrics that you find on an LCA, like how many kilograms of CO2 did I recover? How much water was conserved? You know, what was the impact on human health? Uh, you know, what was, as all these categories and all these, you know, kind of metrics that have been here for, you know, 20, 30 years. I mean, you know, LCA is not a, a new measuring tool, um, but consumers just haven't been interested in it. Um, and I can envision a future where sustainability metrics uh, are con communicated not that differently than the way we communicate uh, the impacts of our consumer electronic products. You know, the en Energy Star system was a system designed to help consumers understand how many kilowatt hours their appliances used. You know, most people, when the Energy, Energy Star system was created, would look at a kilowatt hour and be like, what the heck is that? You know, <laughs> so they, they figured out how to translate kilowatt hours into dollars and people get dollars. And so now mm -hmm. people can buy appliances and make smart choices about which appliance is best for their household and which appliance is the most sustainable for their household based on a metric that they understand. Um, and so I'm excited to see the sustainability marketplace become more metric driven and have a you know, fair playing field for brands who are trying to communicate their benefits um, because you have a consistent metric driven uh, sustainable um, messaging. I'm really hopeful about moving toward that future that you envision. And thank you so much for being here today and sharing the incredible innovation behind Bloom. You guys are having a huge impact on the world and global climate change. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about today's guest or just say hello, check out the show notes and find us on Instagram at hopefully sustainable pod. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. As you finish this episode, remember that we are all on a personal journey to make the world a better place, but it's all about progress, not perfection. Until next time, stay hopeful and stay sustainable.